Well, thanks for coming. It's really great to see you, and I want to begin by welcoming all of those who are at our Mill Creek campus, as well as those who are watching online. We are one church in two locations today, as I'm preaching from our Sugarloaf campus. Our Mill Creek campus is located about 20 miles to our north, and I want to encourage you to attend the campus that may be closest to you. Now, before I get started, I, I just adopted a tradition. I've just done it for years, and so I kind of dress up a little bit Easter, and and uh, look a little different. I know some of you are going, who is this guy that's up on the platform? But I have to tell you what happened uh, backstage. One of our, our uh, ladies on our staff, one of our young ladies, she uh, said something to me, and I said, um, what did you say? She said, I, I said, Doc, you look dapper tonight. I said, okay, I thought you said, are you wearing your diaper tonight? <laughs> so... Thank God she didn't say that and she still has a job. Now, if you're like me, and I bet a lot of you are, your life is full. As a matter of fact, it's probably overfilled. Uh, it, it, we pastors have a saying, Sunday's coming. And, and what we mean by that is this, doesn't matter what else I get done next week, there's one thing I gotta get done. What do you think that is? A sermon. Sunday's coming. Doesn't matter what else I do. It doesn't matter to you how many hospitals I see or sick people I visit or people that I counsel or phone calls I return or emails I've got to answer. It doesn't matter to you. Sunday is coming. Well, on top of that, all of us, many of us at least, have to constantly be thinking about, praying about, working about, and, and, and preparing things we've got to do. See, my saying is Sunday's coming. Your saying is Monday's coming. It just happens to be that Sunday's my Monday. And we all face the same pressures. I mean, there are tons of emails to answer. There are phone calls to return. There are teams to lead. There are people to meet. There's counsel to give. There's books to read. And in my case, there's books to write. There's speaking engagements. And then on top of all of that, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. I'm a friend. I'm a neighbor. And did I mention, by the way, uh, I got to find some time to watch ESPN and exercise and play a little golf. And, 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 you know, you get the point, right? Too many obligations and not enough time to get them all done. And there's a feeling that I battle. I'm just being transparent and honest tonight. There's a feeling that I battle, and I battle it quite often. I think I battle it the older I get. And, and sometimes it's worse than others, and sometimes, frankly, it's almost unbearable, and it's the feeling of just being overwhelmed. It's that feeling when you just want to throw up your hands and you just want to go, I just want to get off the train. And I know I'm not the only one that gets that feeling or, or, or has that feeling. You're probably like me. There are times in your life you just feel like, I just don't have enough life left to give what life demands. I just don't have enough time. I don't have enough energy. I don't have enough brain power. I don't have enough manpower to pull off what I need to pull off. There's just not enough of you to go around. And I bet there's some of you even here tonight and you wanted to be gone for spring break, but you're so overwhelmed you couldn't leave. You've got the kind of job you couldn't get off. You, you, you can't be like your neighbors and some of your friends that, that got to take off Friday or yesterday or, or, or uh, today and, and, and leave and be gone. Or then maybe your problem is not that, maybe it's not that you're professionally overwhelmed. Maybe your problem is you're personally overwhelmed. Maybe your problem is that you're discouraged. You face a situation that appears to be hopeless and you just feel like waving the white flag and you feel like saying, there's just no way out of the mess that I'm in. Or perhaps you are angry or you're bitter 
because of a wrong that's been done you in the past and somehow you just can't get past it. Or maybe you're on a guilt trip. You've been on this guilt trip for a long time and some way, somehow, you just can't seem to find an exit anywhere. So as we were planning our year, we plan our year in advance about what we're going to preach and say. And so as we were planning this in advance, we decided it would be a great thing on Easter Sunday, this Easter Sunday weekend, to begin a series called Overwhelmed. Now, you may stop and say, wait a minute, this is Easter weekend, and you may wonder, what does an empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus have to do with being overwhelmed? Well, what you're going to discover over the next several weeks is that when you're at that point, and I'm at that point at times, when you feel like that life has completely defeated you, love won on the cross. And through a resurrected Savior, we can overcome being overwhelmed. Now, here's what I'd like to do. I want to go back 2,000 years to a Saturday night. You know, it's interesting. We talk about Good Friday and we talk about Resurrection Sunday, but we never seem to talk about the Saturday night in between. I want you to go back 2,000 years and I want you to think about this. The disciples were totally overwhelmed. I mean, completely overwhelmed. They were overwhelmed with guilt. They had run out on Jesus. Jesus was always there for them, but the one time he needed them, they were nowhere to be found. They scattered like balloons in the wind. They were overwhelmed with stress. I mean, after all, they were his disciples. They were known as his buddies. They had hung out with him for three years. They had bucked the religious establishment. The Pharisees had him killed. And now they're wondering, what's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to our family? What's going to happen to our friends? Are they going to kill us too? They were overwhelmed with anger. They were angry at the Pharisees because they had Jesus killed. They were angry at themselves because they had run out on him. They were angry at the Romans because they were the ones that had crucified him. And then they were overwhelmed with discouragement. Think about it. Put yourself in their position. For three years, they'd been with this man, ate with him, slept with him, breathed with him, walked with him, talked with him. Three years, they'd given all of their life. 24-7, they were hardly ever separated. And yes, they'd made a decision. We believe you are the Messiah. We believe you're exactly who you said you are. And we're going all in on you. They had bet the ranch. They had gone all in on Jesus, and it looked like they'd lost it all. They had rolled the dice, and the dice came up snake eyes. Everything they had bet on. This one man, they were convinced. He's the man. He's dead. And they're looking at each other on that Saturday night going, well, how'd that work out for us? Now where do we go? Now whom do we turn to? But now we know what happened. Sunday morning came and changed everything. Changed their whole perspective on who they were. Changed their whole perspective on who Jesus was. And they were able to overcome being overwhelmed. And so for the next four weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to deal with those same things in our life that seem to overwhelm us. Stress. Anybody here stressed out? Bitterness. Anybody here got one person on your list that you would really love to see have something bad happen to because of what they did to you? Discouragement. 
You feel like that you've gotten yourself in maybe a financial situation or a marital situation or a relational situation, and there's absolutely no way out. And so today, we're going to deal with something that can be so overwhelming, so powerful, so oppressive, it can drive you to suicide. I've known people. I've had to minister to families who had a loved one commit suicide because this one thing totally overwhelmed them. It's this one thing that can drain any happiness out of your life. It can drain any joy out of your heart. It can suck the air of peace right out of you. And it's guilt. And there's a lot of guilt in this room. There's a lot of guilt on our other campus. There's a lot of guilt watching us right now on a computer. You know what it's like. Guilt over that failed marriage. Guilt over that DUI. Guilt over that failed business. Guilt over not spending enough time with your children. Guilt over that one night stand. Guilt over that broken friendship. Guilt over that sexual abuse. You, you've been there. You know what I'm talking about. It's, it, 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 it's, it's a ghost that will haunt you. And it's a ghost that will hinder you and hurt you. And it will follow you to the day that you die unless you do one thing with it. You take it to a cross and you take it to an empty tomb. Because I'm telling you right now, if you're one of these people right now and you live with guilt every day of your life and it is sucking the joy out of you, sucking the happiness out of you. You just can't seem to get past your guilt. If you don't take it to a cross and you don't take it to an empty tomb, you will live with it the rest of your life. I was this as I was preparing this message. I don't know if you know about this or not. But in Washington, D.C., there, there's, there's an account called the Conscience Fund. This is kind of interesting. It began in 1811 when President James Madison received $5 from one, someone who said they had defrauded the government. And this guilt money has been dribbling into the U.S. Treasury ever since and has collected over $7 million. The biggest sum ever received, $155,000, was arrived in 1990. It, was, it, it came in, 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 a, in a cashier's check. It didn't have any way to trace it whatsoever. The person that sent it in did not tell them why they were doing so. And ever since 1982, $200,000 a year come into the conscience fund from people who feel guilty because they defrauded the government, they cheated the government, they didn't pay their taxes, and they're trying to pay off their guilt. But here's where the problem lies. Let me tell you why we have such a big, big problem with guilt. Let me tell you why we get on a guilt trip, but we can't get off. Let me tell you why we fall into a guilt trap, but we can't get free. It goes all the way back to the very first man that was ever created. His name was Adam. When Adam was created, don't you think about this, when Adam was created, he was created without the ability to cope with guilt. Because Adam was not put on this earth to sin, he was put on this earth to serve God and know God and love God and worship God and obey God. He was put on this earth to do whatever God told him to do. And then when Adam sinned, he didn't know what to do. He had no way to deal with it. Think about it. Think about being the first person who ever committed the very first sin. You don't have a template to run on. You don't have somebody else that, that sinned and said, okay, let me see how they handled it. 
And Adam was totally and completely, and not just figuratively, he was lost. And that's why when you go back, it's so fascinating. That's why when you go back and read the third chapter of Genesis, what was the only thing Adam knew to do when he sinned and he was guilty? He did two things. He ran, and what else did he do? He hid. Isn't that what we do when we do something wrong, we do something bad? We run and we hide. Because just like Adam, deep down, we were never ever put here to be on a guilt trip. And somehow, so many people go through life and never learn that even though guilt is an inside job, you need outside help to get over it. And the reason why guilty people have such a hard time forgiving themselves is because you can never forgive yourself until you first get forgiveness from God because it's always God that you're guilty before, before you're guilty before anybody else. And that's where the cross comes in. That's where the empty tomb comes in. That's where Easter comes in. See, this is what I want you to take away with you this, this, uh, today. There is an off-ramp for the guilt trip. There's an off-ramp for the guilt trip. God's forgiveness through the cross and the empty tomb. So tonight, today, if you are, if, if you're guilty, I mean, if you're, if you're just laboring with guilt and you're just under this severe, severe guilt, I want you to listen today to one of those eyewitnesses of that resurrection. He was a disciple. His name was John. He was a witness to both the crucifixion and the resurrection. And he wrote a little book in the Bible telling us how to get off the guilt trip and how to get out of the guilt trap. So I want you to take, if you brought a copy of God's Word today, if you brought a copy of, maybe you brought an iPad or an iPhone or whatever, there's a little book called 1 John, not the Gospel of John, 1 John is almost at the very end of your Bible. I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 1. And I want to share with you three ways this morning how to get off the off-ramp of guilt into the exit that's marked forgiveness. All right, three things you have to do. So let me just stop right here. You will leave here one of two ways. If you're one of those folks who came in and, and there's, some, there's one thing or it may be more than one. But there's something that haunts you every day. There's something you regret every day. There's something that you feel guilty about every day. There's something you just can't seem to forgive yourself of every single day. You can walk out the way you walked in. I just want you to know you don't have to. But you have to do exactly what God says and exactly the way God says it if you want to get off the off-ramp of the highway of guilt and get on the road to forgiveness. Three things you've got to do. Number one, You've got to acknowledge the fact of your sin. First thing you've got to do, you've got to acknowledge the fact of your sin. Now, let me tell you what the root cause of guilt is. When you're guilty, it's because you feel like you've done something wrong. That's what guilt comes from, right? Guilt is a sign of a healthy conscience. So when you feel like you've done something wrong, you feel guilty. Now, what you call doing something wrong, if it truly is wrong, is what the Bible calls sin. Now, I'm going, to, I'm going to explain sin in, in just a moment, but let me just kind of stay on this, this one train of thought. If the root cause of guilt is sin, then you've got to deal with the sin correctly if the guilt is going to be removed. You can't get rid of the guilt until you deal with the sin. That's why a lot of people stay on the guilt trip. They don't want to deal with their sin. They, they don't want to, to acknowledge the fact of their sin because let me tell you what I've learned. In all my counseling through the years, when, when people come to me and they're feeling guilty and they, they don't know how to deal with it, and I'm going back, I'm trying to pinpoint what it is they feel guilty about, I found that people tend to do one of three things with their sin. So, some people deny their sin. Some people just, they, they just 
denied. As a matter of fact, John deals with this issue twice in this first chapter. He says in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, that is, hey, I don't care what anybody says. I think what I'm doing is all right. I think my lifestyle is good. If I'm happy with it, I'm not hurting anybody. I don't care what God says or anybody else says. It's not sin to me. You can call it sin if you want to. I decide what's sin. I decide what's not sin. So he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. He goes on to say this in verse 10. He says, if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So in other words, if God's word says something is wrong, and we say, no, it's not, then one of us is lying, and God says, if I say something is wrong, and you say it's not wrong, no matter what it is, you're calling God a liar. Now, if the root cause of guilt is sin, then the only way the guilt can ever be removed is if that sin is forgiven. Now, here's the problem. We're living in a world today, and we're living in a country today, and we're living in a culture today, and we're living in a society today where, quite frankly, the word sin is seldom, if ever, used. Let me give you an example. Um, a politician is called having an affair, or a banker is called embezzling money, or an investment banker or an investment broker knowingly builds thousands of people out of their retirement. They'll, they'll go on television and if they get caught red-handed, here's the four words you'll hear them say almost 100% of the time. I made a mistake. I, I made a mistake. Now, let me just stop here. This will be worth coming for. There's a big difference between a, a sin and a mistake, okay? There's no need to feel guilt over a mistake. I, I, I remember when I was in the sixth grade, um, I was always kind of a perfectionist as a student, and, 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 and I had a goal that year. I was going to make an A on every math test that I took. So uh, all through the year, you know, we got a report card every six weeks. You may remember those days. Some of you are old enough to remember. We got a report card every six weeks. And so we had a test every six weeks. Well, the first week I made an A. Second week I made an A. Third week I made an A. Fourth week I made an A. Fifth week I made an A. I come to the last test of the year. It was two days before school was out. And, and uh, we took this math test. And I was adding up, I was, we, we were doing some addition, and I misadded one row of numbers on a problem, and it caused me to make a B on that exam instead of an A. Now, my final grade for the year was an A. But I made a B, and my goal was I wanted to make six perfect A's, and I made a B on that one exam. And I want to tell you something, I was devastated. I was crushed. I was heartbroken. I even got my mother to go visit the teacher after school was already out to see if I could do any makeup work to bring that up to an A. I mean, it's just crazy how, how crazy I was. But you know what? I felt bad about making a B on that last test, and I really kind of was very disappointed. I didn't feel guilty. I didn't feel like I had to go confess that to my pastor. I didn't feel like I had to make restitution because it wasn't a sin. It was a mistake. Mistakes don't bring guilt. Sin brings guilt. Now, let me show you how Easter and guilt go together. Okay, it's real simple. Watch this. If I am a mistaker and I'm not a sinner, in other words, if everything I do wrong is not a sin, it's just a mistake. If I'm a, a mistaker and I'm not a sinner, then I don't need a Savior. I just need to do better. I need to learn from my mistakes, right? But here's the problem. 
Mistakes need to be corrected. Sins need to be forgiven. You don't need to forgive a mistake. You need to forgive a sin. If, if, if I uh, inadvertently turn left on a one-way street because I didn't see the one-way sign and I cause an accident, that is not a, a crime or a sin. That is a mistake. However, if I turn left on a one-way street going the wrong way because I'm inebriated and I'm drunk, now it's not a mistake. It's a sin. One needs to be corrected. The other needs to be forgiven. Jesus, listen, Jesus did not die for our mistakes. Jesus died for our sins. He died for our sins. And, and, and you see, that, that is our, our problem. He came back from the grave not to correct mistakes. He came back from the grave to forgive sins. So some people, they deny their sin. Now let me tell you what some, some people do. Some people dilute their sin. Here, here's what they do. Even if they will admit that, that, it, that it's more than just a mistake, they'll say something like this. Well, everybody does it. I mean, I'm not the only one that's done this. Or, you know, things happen. Now, it may make you feel better for a while, but it won't remove your guilt. So some people deny it, some people dilute it, and then some people defend their sin. They'll say things like, well, I was young. I was naive. I didn't know any better. I, I, I was innocent. I was entrapped. I was desperate. I was broke. Now, let me just stop right here. I want you to, this is so important. This may be the most important thing I'm going to say all night. If you ever want to deal with your guilt, if you ever want to get off the guilt trip, and if you want to get, ever want to get free from the guilt trap, I want you to hear what I'm about to tell you. You are never going to get past your past until you quit trying to pass your past off. You are never going to get past your past until you quit trying to pass your past off. You're never going to get clean until you admit and acknowledge that you're dirty. You're never going to get free until you acknowledge that you're in prison. Your conscience will never be clear until you acknowledge, I've got a sin problem that's causing my guilt. And the best way to deal with sin and the best way to handle sin is not to deny it, not to delude it, not to defend it. The first step you got to take is just declare it. You just got to call it what it is and say, yes, it's my fault. It's nobody else's fault. I am not the victim. I am the perpetrator. It is my problem. I have to deal with it. There was a man that was weaving in and out of traffic and he was driving erratically and his police officer saw him and so he pulls him over. Guy rolled his window down. He said, sir, he said, uh, I need you to breathe into this breathalyzer. And uh, the man said, officer, I, I can't do that. He said, well, why not? He said, well, I, I'm an asthmatic. And, and I could have an asthma attack and I could die right here. So the officer said, well, okay. Um, he said, I, I'll need you to come down to the, to the station and, and we'll, we need to get some blood work. And the man said, well, officer, I'm, I, I can't do that either. He said, why not? He said, well, I'm a hemophiliac. If I come down there and you take my blood, I could bleed to death, and then you, you, you'd be in big trouble. So the officer said, uh, okay, fine. He said, uh, then I, I need you to come down to the station. I need to get a urine sample. And the guy said, well, I can't do that either. He said, why not? He said, well, I'm a diabetic. If I do that, my sugar could get really low, and I'd go into diabetic shock, and then I'd sue you. So finally, just the officer was so exasperated, he said, okay, then just step out of the car and just walk down this white line for me. The man said, well, I can't do that either. He said, well, why can't you do that? He said, because I'm drunk. Now, 
The best thing to do and the first thing you should do in handling guilt is just acknowledge the fact of your sin. It's my fault. It's my problem. I'm not going to call it a mistake. I'm going to call it what it is. It is a sin. All right, that's step one. You acknowledge the fact of your sin. Number two, you've got to admit the fault of your sin. Not just enough to acknowledge the fact of it. Yeah, I did wrong. It's more than that. You've got to admit the fault of your sin. Because remember, there's only one remedy for guilt. It's not a bad conscience. It's not a good lawyer. The only remedy for guilt is forgiveness. Not a cover-up, not an alibi, not shifting the blame. The only remedy for guilt and the only way that sin that causes guilt can be taken care of is confession. So here's what John says. He says, if we confess our sins, not our mistakes, you don't confess a mistake. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, that is God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, understand clearly what sin is. This is very important because a lot of people I now realize they don't even understand what sin is. Make it real simple. Sin is disobeying God. It's just that simple. It's not a crime. Now, now, now a crime can be a sin. In fact, most, probably most crimes are sins. But sin's more than a crime. You're not just breaking the human law. You are breaking God's law. As a matter of fact, John went on to say this two chapters later. He said, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. Okay, time out. Sin is lawlessness. Whose law is John talking about? He's talking about God's law. So he says, every time you break God's law, you are sinning. So the first thing you've got to do with your sin is you've got to say, God, I know what my sin did now. I did two things when I sinned. I broke your law and I broke your heart. My sin was primarily first against you. No matter what I did to anybody else, my sin primarily was first against you. Now, let me just, this is important. John just said, if we confess our sin, God will forgive us. However, confessing sin is more than just admitting sin. You can admit you did something wrong without truly confessing you've done something wrong. You say, well, how do you do that? Well, the word confess is interesting. It comes from two words, one word which means the same and another word which means to say. So when you put that together, confession means to say the same thing. Well, to say the same thing as who? To say the same thing as God. So when you confess sin, you call sin what it is. So for example, you committed adultery on your wife. You don't say, I made a mistake. You said, I committed adultery. When you embezzle uh, a, a money from someone, you don't say, well, I made an accounting mistake. You say, I stole. You call sin whatever God calls it. You say the same thing. You call sin whatever God says that it's sin, and then you admit to God what God already knows. Lord, it's my fault. I'm not blaming anybody else. I wasn't entrapped. It wasn't I was too young. It wasn't this. It wasn't that. I'm not making any excuses. This I brought on myself. I am the cause of the problem. Now, the reason why that's so hard for us to do, and it is, is because, in effect, when you stand up and you confess your sin, what you're really doing is you're taking the stand and you are testifying against yourself. And we're so adverse to doing that and so hate doing that 
And it so goes so against our human nature that even in our Constitution, as you well know, we have what is famously known as the Fifth Amendment. And if you don't know what that amendment says, let me refresh your memory. No person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. The problem is, if you're going to deal with guilt before God, that's exactly what you have to do. You have to take the stand against yourself. You have to be the witness against yourself. You've got to testify against yourself. In other words, you can't plead the fifth with God. You may be able to plead the fifth with a court. You may be able to plead, be able to plead the fifth with a Congress or with a judge, but you cannot plead the fifth with God. Or, or to give you another example, there's no Miranda rule with God. When it comes to your sin, you don't have the right to remain silent. When it comes to your sin, anything you say can and will be used against you in God's court, but you had better say it because the only way God will ever forgive it is if you confess it. And if you refuse to confess it, for whatever the reason, if you say, I'm not going to witness it against myself, then the cloud of sin will give off the fog of guilt and it will totally wipe out any way that you can see God and have a real relationship with God. Let me just tell you how this works. Guilt affects two different classes of people in two different ways. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't even claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, or you know you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe this is you I'm talking to this, this, uh, today, this morning. If you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, You've got unconfessed sin. You, you, you've got a sin problem, and you've never let God take care of your complete sin problem. Here's your problem. Here's where you are. It's, it's not that God's kind of upset with you or you're kind of on the outs with God. It's worse than that. You don't have a relationship with God. You cannot have a relationship with God until God takes care of your sin problem. For example, in, in the book of Isaiah, it says this. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Here's a picture. I want you to imagine that you go out and you buy a brand new television. You can't wait to get home and, and, and plug the TV up. It's one of these brand new, you know, big screen TVs. You're just so excited. And so you get home. I want you to imagine there's only one outlet in the whole house and somebody has nailed a two by four over that outlet. Now, it doesn't matter how much that TV costs. It doesn't matter, how, it doesn't matter how, much, how beautiful that TV is. You can't get a picture on that TV. And the reason why you can't get a picture on that TV is because there's no way the plug can connect to the electricity. Now, let me tell you what sin in your life is. Sin is like a two-by-four, and it keeps you from connecting with God. And only God can remove that two-by-four. Two and once you confess that the two-by-four is there, and once you confess that you're the one that put it there, then God says, okay, now I will take it away, and now you can have a relationship with me. So here's how it affects you. If you've never really acknowledged you've got a sin problem ever, you've never come to the cross of Jesus Christ, you've never placed your faith in him, you've never given, given all that you are to all that he is, and you've never gotten his forgiveness for your sin problem, you cannot have a relationship with God. However, suppose you are a follower of Christ. And let's suppose you've got unconfessed sin. You're on a guilt trip. 
And the reason why you're on the guilt trip is the same reason the other fellow is, because you've done something wrong and you've never owned up to it. You've never taken care of it. You will still have a relationship with God. Your problem is you will severely damage your fellowship with God. And that's why John goes on to say this in, in, in verse 6. He says, if we say, that's we, that's just talking about believers, people who say they, they, they know Jesus. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. There's a difference between relationship and fellowship. I have three sons. We have a permanent relationship. Doesn't matter what they do or what I do. There's one something that will never change. I will always be their dad. They will always be my son. It doesn't matter what crime they may be convicted of or I may be convicted of. doesn't matter. They will always be my sons. I will always be their dad. However, if we have a severe disagreement over a matter that becomes intentionally divisive or if we wrong each other, if I wrong one of them, one of them wrongs me, it won't affect our relationship, but it will definitely affect our fellowship. And we've learned in our family, when that happens, the only way to restore that fellowship is for the first purpose for the person who damaged that fellowship to take the initiative, to step up, to admit their fault, confess it, and make it right. What happens is not that we lose the joy of the relationship, but we lose the joy of the fellowship. And just as truly, just as there's truly no, you know, there's no such thing as a no-fault divorce. I don't know where we got that idea. If you've ever been divorced, you, you'll give this testimony. Somebody was at fault, right? Divorces just don't happen. Perfect people don't get divorced. So whenever there's a divorce, I know somebody has some fault somewhere. Likewise, there's no such thing as no-fault sin. And if you don't want to live under the cloud of guilt, you must not only acknowledge the fact of your sin, you've got to admit the fault of your sin. Now, you call it whatever you want to. You, 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 know, but you, you call it whatever God calls it. But you've got to take ownership of it, and you've got to completely confess, confess it. Now, here's what happens. Once you step up and you say, okay, I'm ad, I, I am acknowledging the fact of my sin. My guilt was caused by what I did. I am not a victim of it. It's my problem. And I admit the fault of my sin. It wasn't a mistake. It was a sin. I broke your law, God, and I broke your heart. Then you can take that last step that will get you off the guilt trip. You can ask for the forgiveness of your sin. Now watch this. This is what Easter is all about. The cross and the resurrection tells us there is no guilty stain that is so deep and so dark that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot remove it. You know, at the cross, love won. The sin debt was paid and a way out of the guilt trip was provided. And here's what God says. God says, look, you got a problem. Your problem is sin. Your sin is caused guilt. You can't get rid of your guilt. You live with it every day of your life, right? You say, yes, Lord, that's right. God says, okay, I'll make a deal. You do your part, I'll do mine. Okay, Lord, so what is my part? My part is I admit the fact of my sin. I acknowledge the fault of my sin. And I ask for forgiveness for my sin. 
And then God says, okay, now I'll do my part. In love, I'm going to remove the sin and I'm going to remove the guilt. Now that raises a big question. How do we know God does that? How, how do I really know that God truly forgives me? All right, let's read this verse again. If we confess our sins, and now we know exactly what John means by that. It's not a mistake. We say the same thing. We don't call it one thing. We call it what God calls it. Once we truly do that, he is, two reasons, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now listen to what John says. John says, forgiveness is absolutely guaranteed. As a matter of fact, John puts it this way. If you will admit the fault, if you will acknowledge the fault of your sin, and if you will admit the fact of your sin, and if you'll ask for forgiveness of your sin, there is a 100% chance you'll be forgiven. Not 99.9, not 99.999. John says there is an absolute 100% chance you will be forgiven. And John says, let me tell you how you can know that's true. Two reasons. Number one, God is faithful to what he says. He's faithful to what he says. Isaiah 55, 7 puts it this way. Let the wicked change their ways and banish the very thought of doing wrong. Let them turn to the Lord that he may have mercy on them. Yes, turn to our God, for he will forgive generously. God's made a promise. Set it in concrete. Written it in stone. Sealed it with the blood of his own son. And God says every single time, not most times, not many times, God says 100% of the time, when someone comes to me who has no relationship with me whatsoever, none, when someone comes to me and says, I'm admitting to you the fact of my sin. I am a sinner. I'm acknowledging that. I'm admitting the fault of my sin. Everything I've ever done is on me. It's not on anybody else. I'm not blaming anybody else. All of this is on me. It's my fault, and I'm calling it what it is. And today, oh God, I am asking you to forgive me of my sin so that we can have a relationship. God says you will walk away forgiven because if you didn't, God would be guilty of lying. God would be guilty of telling an untruth. He said, look, he is faithful to what he says. And then John said, God is just in what he does. Now, I want you to, we're going to wrap this up. What's this. Why does John say that? Why, why, does John, why, does, why does John pick out those two words? Okay, if we confess our sins, God is faithful. He's faithful to what he says. But then he says God's just. Well, now, how does God being just, how does that help me get forgiven? Because after all, here's the problem. If God is a just God, and the Bible says all throughout Scripture that he is, then what God can't do is just kind of write our sins off as a bad debt. He, he can't just pretend as if they didn't happen. In other words, God can't just kind of sweep them under the carpet because he's just. He can't just say, well, boys will be boys. Let's just let bygones be bygones because you know this. If a judge 
allows a criminal to go free that is proven guilty beyond a shadow or, or, or beyond a reasonable doubt. If a judge allows a criminal to go free that he knows is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, the judge becomes guilty. God is just. God says, I'm sorry, I can't let anybody get away with anything and I won't because I am just. And so the question comes, so how can God forgive us of what we are truly guilty of, declare us innocent, and still be just? How can God do that? How can even God pull that off? But God, he did do it. I, I know he did it. But God, she is guilty. I, I know she's guilty. But God, everybody knows what they are. I know. Everybody knows what they are. But you didn't just forgive them. You declared them innocent. You wiped the slate clean. But they're guilty. We got the evidence. The blood's on their hands. How in the world can you do that? And the answer is Easter. Jesus dies on a cross to pay for our sins on Good Friday. And then on Easter Sunday, to prove that God accepted payment, to prove that God cashed the check, God raises Jesus from the dead. Because here's what happens. When God forgives, he cancels the sin debt completely. Listen to the last part of verse 9. I love this. And cleanses us from, do you see that word? Can you say that with me? Say it real loud. Oh, and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Let me tell you something. If that word said most, we're sunk. If that word says a lot, we're dead. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So let me tell you what's so great about being a follower of Jesus Christ. So the devil comes to you and he says, James, you, you thought some things today that you shouldn't have thought today. Yeah, I did. John, you out there on that golf course, you let, let a word slip today. Yeah, I did. And you failed in your marriage, Sally, and it was your fault. Yeah, it was. And then you simply say to Satan, would you just take a little trip with me for just a moment? Yeah, sure. Where, where are we going? Let's, let's go up to the courthouse. You mean God's courthouse? Yeah, let's go to God's courthouse. So you walk into God's courthouse and you say, you see, these are all the records of all the people who have ever lived right over here. Would you mind going to my file? I'd love to. So he goes to the file and he finds your name and he looks and he looks at you and he says, there's no record of any sin you've committed. Yeah, I know. But I heard you. Yeah, you did. But I saw you. Yes, you did. 
But there's nothing on file. The, the slate is clean. Yeah, it is. How did you pull that off? I didn't. Who paid the judge off? Nobody paid the judge off. Somebody paid my debt off. And so John says, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You see, when you kneel at the foot of the cross and you say, I've got nothing to offer, not blood, not sweat, not toil, not tears, I got nothing to offer but sin and lust and bitterness and anger and jealousy and filth and iniquity and unrighteous. When you kneel at the foot of the cross and you come to that empty tomb, Every sin you've ever committed or ever will commit will be forgiven and will be forgotten by Jesus Christ. If you could go into God's courtroom tonight, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you could go into God's courtroom tonight, if you go into God's courtroom this morning, if you could go into God's courtroom right now and you could, you could just open your file and you could look into your file, you'd only find one piece of paper and you'd only find one word on that piece of paper. You know what that word would say? Forgiven. That's all. Just forgiven. Because love went on the cross. God loves everyone regardless of our sin. Now, let me just kind of wrap this up. I'll show you, I'll show you, I'll show you what John did. This, this, this is so beautiful. I've never seen this before. This same John that wrote the gospel and wrote these three letters called 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, this same John wrote the last book of the Bible. He wrote it. It's called Revelation. Now, it's a very interesting picture. In that book, the last book of Revelation, John describes the vision of the new Jerusalem that, that, that's going to be in the new heaven and the new earth where God's people are going to live forever. And it's really interesting. When, when you read the, the, the description, he makes a very interesting observation about what you're going to see in that great city. I want you to listen to what he said. In Revelation 21, 12, he says this. If I had a great high wall, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. Now, what's this? And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. Now, I bet you're like me. You, if you read Revelation, you've read that probably many, many times before, and you say, okay, so what's the big deal? Listen again. He says, on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were Inscribed. So engraved on the gatepost of heaven are these 12 sons of a man named Jacob. You say, well, so what's the big deal? They weren't Hall of Famers. Their dad was a crook. They were guilty of mass murder. They wiped out an entire city. They were guilty of incest. They were guilty of treason. 
In today's world, they would have either been in prison for life or most likely, in some cases, would have gotten the death penalty. And yet, John says, their names are engraved on the gates of heaven. You say, how in the world could that happen? Because of Easter. Their sins were forgiven and their guilt was removed. So I want to just kind of wrap this up. I hurt for some of you in this room because for years you eat, sleep, and breathe guilt. Can't get rid of it. The ghost of guilt haunts you every day of your life. You'd love to do your life over again. How some of us would love to do our life over again, but you can't do it. You'd give anything if you could put the tube back, the toothpaste back in the tube, but you can't do it. And I just want you to understand this Easter day. Jesus specializes in replacing guilt with grace. He loves to replace sin with salvation. He loves to replace failure with forgiveness. And today, you can get off a highway of guilt. You can get off the off-ramp of grace. And if you're willing to do it today, what you'll find at the top of that ramp is a resurrected Jesus with open arms telling you, hey, love one. I'm here to forgive you. Let's pray together.